All right, good morning, everyone. Beautiful day today. Even got a little bit of rain. Uh, hymn 479. 479. Christ is risen, Christ is living. Dry your tears, be unafraid. Death and darkness could not hold him nor the tomb in which he lay. Do not look among the dead for one who lives forevermore. Tell the world that Christ is risen, make it known he goes before. If the Lord had never risen, we'd have nothing to believe. But his promise can be trusted, you will live because I live. As we share the death of Adam, so in Christ we live again. Death has lost its sting and terror. Christ the Lord has come to reign. Death has lost its old dominion. Let the world rejoice and sing. Christ the firstborn of the living gives us life and leads us out. Let the thank our God who causes hope to spring up from the ground. Christ is risen, Christ is giving life, eternal life profound. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty God, you show those in error the light of your truth, so that they may return to the way of righteousness. Grant faithfulness to all who are admitted into the fellowship of Christ's church, that they may avoid whatever is contrary to their confession and follow all such things as are pleasing to you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, let's speak the verses of the week. James 1, 13 through 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God does not be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Let no one say, when he is tempted, why is it important that we highlight the word when? Yes, because temptation is inevitable. Because you cannot live your life and not be tempted. So... Let nobody say, 
when he is tempted, which means sooner or later, and probably sooner, you are going to be tempted. And when it happens to you, do not say, I am tempted by God. God does not tempt. God cannot be tempted, which, let's focus on this here. God cannot be tempted by evil. What should this make you think of immediately? That God cannot be tempted by evil. Yeah, okay, but be specific. Yes, okay, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So, here's the question then. God cannot be tempted by evil. Does that mean that Jesus in the wilderness really didn't endure any temptations because they were really easy for him to resist? No, because what is the component of Jesus? Yes, he is man and he is God. God cannot be tempted, but man can be. And uh, that is why, by the way, what happens to Jesus when Satan leaves, when Satan departs? Angels come and minister to him. The same thing that happens in the garden. And why are angels ministering to him? It's their job, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, you're right, but, I, but there has to be the why. Why is it their job? Because he is man. The angels do not minister to Christ because Christ is God. They minister to him because he is man. Because he needs to be ministered to according to his flesh. God cannot be tempted by evil, but man can. Whoops. Temptation. Uh, nor does he, that is God, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But what about Job? What about Abraham and the sacrificing of Isaac? What about that? How do you reconcile those things with this, that God does not tempt anyone? He himself does not tempt Okay, God allows, right, so there's two things that you can say here. One is the passive, and it's not really passive, uh, I'm just putting it in that sense, that God permits. But what is the second thing we can say in the active? If God doesn't tempt... What's the deal with Abraham? Test. test. God doesn't tempt, but he does test. What's the difference between temptation and testing? Temptation is a draw toward what is not good. Yes. And a test is... Yes, something that's 
meant to give you a deeper understanding of yourself and of your God for the purpose of having your faith in God strengthened. That is a test. So when God, as an aside, when God says, I'm going to give so-and-so a test, it's not because he says, well, you know, I don't know, Abraham seems like a pretty nice guy, but I don't know, does he really believe in me? Well, I'll find out. I'll give him a test, and if he passes the test, then I'll know that he believes. Well, it's not like God doesn't know. The tests are never for God. They're always for the person who is given the test. Um, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away from what? Drawn away from what? When he is drawn away okay, from faith, from faith, from God, and I'm going to add one because I think all of this can be summarized, from the way. Like the Didache says, there's two ways, there's only two. One of life, one of death. If you are drawn away from the way, then you are into death. And the way is faith and God and life in him and his law and his commands and his gospel, all of that. Okay? Each one is tempted when he is drawn away from this by Satan. Whoops, no, by his own desires. Which means that when do you ever get to use the excuse, well, the devil made me do it? You don't. This is, this is part of the power of the devil. It's not that the devil makes you do things. That wouldn't be real power. The real power is uh, playing to your weaknesses. The devil plays the game by playing the players. You all know what your own individual unique struggles are in life, and those are always the things that the devil will appeal to. And in appealing to them, you are enticed. Well, I'm not supposed to eat of that fruit, but I sort of low-key want to. Yes, I know. Isn't that bad of God that he won't let you eat of that one thing? Well, I don't know. I mean, he did tell me that that he would give me everything that was good for me. Maybe this just isn't good for me. I know you don't really believe that, though, do you? You know that it is good for you. And then she saw with her eyes that the fruit was good for her. See? It's, it is, a temptation is that your own desires are the things that then start to become chief over uh, the Lord's desires for you. So that at the root, this is why I say at the root of every sin is idolatry, because at its core, sin is you making a god of something other than God, whether that be something that you want, or predominantly it's making the god of the self. But even there, in idolatry, there is a deeper root to every single sin, and that is pride. My desire to be like God, just like Satan. I don't need to be God. Satan doesn't desire to replace God. He just wants to be like God. He wants to be like God. 
He wants to be on the same level as God. And that is what sin does. Sin wants to make itself, or I guess the prideful self wants to make itself like God. I want to be the one to make my own decisions. Okay? Let's speak these again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by the... For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. What is the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer? And lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us. may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. Um, first thing is this. I don't typically separate the sixth and the seventh petitions because I think that that actually inhibits your ability to understand what you're praying in the Lord's Prayer because this isn't, and lead us not. That's, that, that's how it's commonly understood. And lead us not into temptation. Then the question becomes, why bother praying this at all if we know that God doesn't tempt us? And if we're praying this, then that means that God maybe does tempt us and that we're praying that he wouldn't tempt us, which then leads to confusion like what happened a few years ago with the Vatican and Pope Francis deciding unilaterally to change the wording of the Lord's Prayer to make it more clear that you're not actually praying that the Lord would not tempt you, to which we can respond and say, I think the issue has already been solved because if you actually read the book of James, it says what the catechism says right there in the beginning of the explanation, sit on your bottom, which is uh, God tempts no one. There, perfect, it's all done. So what you're really saying is, and lead us, comma, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, so six and seven go together. So your real prayer in the sixth petition is lead us, which makes a lot more sense when you consider the fact that you are on the way and you don't want to be drawn away from the way. I want the Lord to be the one that's leading me, not drawn away by whatever it is, my flesh, my desires, my inclinations, my concupiscence. Again, that's the fancy word that means my inner inclination toward sin or to desire sin, uh, we, uh, we don't want to be led away by that. <clears throat> so basically, in this petition, I'm going to give you my small catechism answer, uh, which is in line with Luther's, but it's sort of even simpler than Luther's. We pray in this petition that God would lead us, that we would follow him, and that when we do go astray, he would rescue us and return us to the way. That's what you're praying in the sixth petition. And the image that I want you to think of is the image of the good shepherd. So when you are praying uh, for the Lord to keep you on the way, 
The Lord is your good shepherd. And think of David in this, uh, because what did David do for the lambs of his flock? Yeah, so what happened when the lion or the bear would come to get the <coughs> sheep and steal them away? Yeah, he killed them with his bare hands. I mean, David was kind of cool. Uh, you know, this, this shepherd boy was not content to leave, uh, to leave his one little lamb in the jaws of the lion and say, oh, well, that's a lion. I don't want to mess with a lion. I'll just make sure I watch my sheep better. He said, no, doggone it. I'm going to get that sheep back. No lion's going to. And he goes and he kills a lion and he kills bears to, to, to protect his sheep his lambs. Now that's an image of what the good shepherd really looks like. Psalm 23 is great, but Psalm 23 is a lot more violent than what you think it is. Everybody thinks that Psalm 23 is so idyllic. Oh, But it isn't, because what does the good shepherd do? Why do you fear no evil in the valley of the shadow of death? Because the shepherd's rod and staff are with you. Because he's going to use those to kill anybody who tries to get you. That's why. So when you're praying that the Lord would lead you and then also praying that when I'm led astray, I would, he would be the one to bring me back, what you're saying is when I fall into the jaws of temptation, whether that be the jaws of Satan or my own flesh or the desires of the world, whatever it is, I want you to be the one to come over there, rip open the mouth of that beast, pull me out, and then take me back to where I'm supposed to be, put me down, pat me, dry me off, and then keep on going. When I was little, I used, we lived at my grandparents' house for a while. They had a finished basement. We had a little apartment down there. My grandma had two dogs. And I used to drive around on this little, you know, a little scoot truck thing. And when you got off of it, the seat would open up. And my grandma would give me saltine crackers. And I would sit and I'd put saltines in that little seat and I'd close it up and then I'd drive until I'd get hankering for a, a saltine, and then I'd get out and I'd open it and I'd eat saltines. And there was one day that her big 100-pound golden retriever, Seamus, who earned that name, which is many stories for many different days, Seamus came and, like a dog will do, just took that cracker right out of my hand. And instead of letting the dog have it, I grabbed the dog, I pulled the dog to the ground, I opened the dog's mouth, I reached in, and I took that cracker out of the dog's mouth. And I'm telling you the story because that is what you're praying the Lord would do for you, that you never be swallowed up by anything, that the, the moment the jaws close down, Christ is there opening the mouth, reaching down in, pulling you out, putting you back into the seat of that tractor, closing the lid, and then keep on scooting down the way, okay? Kids, to Sunday school. As it's relayed to me, I did eat the cracker, yes. So we should, assume that we should assume that at least at one time I had a real good immune system. <laughs> uh. Bruce, you had a question. Yeah? Uh-huh. Ah, that's a really good question. Does the devil... The question is, when we pray, 
lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, does the devil hear our prayers? The answer is no. This is one of the powers of prayer. Prayer is like an end-to-end encrypted message. The devil cannot bear prayers. Uh, The devil cannot stand to be around you when you pray. And the devil cannot listen in on the prayers that you pray to the Lord. So actually, when Jesus says things about the demons, like, like, you remember when he sends the apostles out and they come back and they say, hey, all right, look at all this stuff we did in your name, Jesus. And then some of them come back and they say, well, but we tried to cast out this demon and we couldn't do it. We did everything you said that we were supposed to do. We used your name. And Jesus says, what? These kind can only go out by prayer and fasting. So in that sense, just completely removing it from the fasting aspect, you have Jesus' words right there where prayer is actually an effective weapon against the devil. So not only does he not listen, he cannot listen, and even if he wanted to hang around and try to eavesdrop, he couldn't because when you pray, it's like, I don't know, it's like the static feedback of a microphone or... uh, nails on a chalkboard, just a disconcerting and really painful experience, and, the, and it, it drives the devil away. So there you go. Is that an adequate answer to your question? Good answer. Okay. <laughs> uh, good. <laughs> yeah, the devil can't eavesdrop in on prayers. So when you are praying to the Lord, it really is you praying to the Lord, end-to-end encrypted. Know that there's... Uh, There's no interference, and the messages don't get intercepted, and the enemy cannot decode them. You've got the best best code on those transmissions, okay? Um, There's something else that I want to say about these verses, something that Lutherans don't ever talk about, or when they do talk about it, they tend actually to talk about it the wrong way. And um, this is something that we talk about in Catechumenate, but I have the opportunity to do it now. Drawn away by your own desires. This also is something that points to your will. Your will as a Christian. We downplay the will very often in the Lutheran faith. That you actually can desire to do something and want to do it and then make the decision to do it. Now, I'm not saying by this that salvation is your decision to make. What I am saying is that as people who are in Christ, you do have a will, and you can choose to sin or not to sin. The one thing that you can't choose is never to sin. So an example of that is when you are faced with a fork in the road... You can't keep going forward and you have to make a decision, am I going to go this way or that way? Do you have the ability to make the decision, I'm going to go this way or that way? Or must you camp out until somebody else comes and pulls you and says, no, you're supposed to be going this way? You can make your decision. So when you are confronted with sin or with the opportunity for sin, this is one reason why we talk about things like spiritual disciplines. A discipline is something that must be exercised as well. 
and a, a discipline such as like fasting, for example, it's just the first one that comes to mind. That is your, you know, who's the one that, that, that makes you fast? Who's the one that monitors your fasting? You. Who's the one that decides you're going to fast? You. Who's the one that determines what you fast from and what your fast looks like? You. And who is the one that is faced with the decision, or rather the dilemma, of I know that I've decided that I'm going to fast and that this is part of my spiritual discipline, but I'm sick and tired of not eating candy, and here's a candy bar right on the counter. What do I do? There's a fork in your road. Now, you, you have the ability to make the decision, am I going to eat that candy bar or not eat that candy bar? You have the, you have the ability to make the decision eat, and even go further and say, no, I am going to maintain my piety and maintain my fast, and in order for me to do that, not only am I not going to eat the candy bar, but I'm going to take it off the counter and I'm going to throw it away so that I don't even have the temptation around me. Now, the same thing is important in, in terms of struggling with addiction, spiritual addictions especially, such as something like pornography. So, do you have a choice, even within your addiction, to boot up the computer and look at nasty things, or not to? Yes, and in fact, you can go further than saying, I will or I won't. You can also establish safeguards for yourself and make rules and uh, governing things that help you and assist you in maintaining that piety. But all of that is something that you work at and something that you work toward. So when your will becomes corrupted, what do you choose to do? You choose the wrong thing. Now think about the Garden of Eden. Is man's will more or less pure before the sin of the garden? Yes. Yes. And how is it after? It is corrupted. It is not gone, but it is corrupted. Then how is it after baptism? Not quite, but she said pure. It's not quite because you're, st you're still not after baptism to the same place pre-fall. But after Christ comes and at the time of the resurrection, your will will be even better than what it was before the fall. Okay, but it is, it is regenerated. So that in baptism now your will is sort of in a spot where you can recognize good and evil and you have the ability to make the decision. Now, are you always going to make the right and the good decision? No, you're not. Which is why I say you can choose not to sin, but you can't choose never to sin. Because uh, it, the degree of work and discipline that it takes for you even to be at the point where you can say no to a specific sin is <laughs> immense, immeasurable in fact. And uh, <laughs> one lapse in concentration and discipline, which frankly is very, very, very easy, and we all do it. You can be really diligent about... It's like Pastor, <laughs> Pastor Kinney. You know, I've said this before. Pastor Kinney talks about how when he does his Lenten, and especially his Holy Week fasting and disciplines, he directs all of his prayers and his fasting against the sins that bother him the most. And he says, I actually, by the end of that Lent, I've gotten over those sins. I fought them to the point where I feel pretty good about being disciplined 
and dominant over the sins that used to dominate me. But then I find that in focusing so much on those, all of these other things have now popped up. So it's one of those things where you have to target it specifically, but the moment that you target specifically, everything else comes. You can't ever just do one big mass blast. It always is focused, and then as it's focused, everything else that isn't being focused gets hit and grows. So you're always living a life where the good that you want to do, you don't do, and the evil that you don't want to do, you do, generally speaking. It's in the specifics that we can talk about you resisting temptation. And uh, being drawn away is important. Now look at this. If you don't think that you actually have the ability to do that, the epistle lesson for today should um, change your mind. So look at this. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Hey, I'm telling you, fight against this and stay away from them. Now who, does, who performs that work? that discipline, who is the one that works to abstain from fleshly lusts? You. you. And why are you going to do it? One, because the Holy Spirit is in you, because you have faith in Christ, because you're regenerated, because your eyes are now opened and you actually know the good and evil, but also because they kill you and you don't want to be killed. You want to stay alive. Having your conduct honorable, look at this, all of these good, by your good works, do these things, submit yourselves, honor all people, don't use liberty as a cloak for vice, you're free in the gospel, but freedom in the gospel does not mean the ability to do whatever you want. This is a made-up idea that is... It makes, um, it makes Christianity in America more difficult. Christianity in, in every region has its own unique difficulties uh, presented by the setting. American Christianity, some of her difficulties are, one, individualism and independence, because you think that because individualism and independence are virtues of your secular world, that they are also virtues in the church. And guess what, pal, they ain't. Two, democracy. You think that because you live in a democratic country, a beacon of the democratic West, some may even say, that those goals and values are also good in the church. Friend, they ain't. This place ain't no democracy. Sorry to, sorry to break it to you. It's not a democracy. At best, it's a theocracy. God tells you what to do, and you say, okay, where is your representative? Depends on how you define representative. In some sense, I am your representative, because I go to the Lord and I say, please don't kill these people. I know they daily sin much, but don't kill them. In actuality, though, I'm only doing that because I'm in Jesus' office, and Jesus is the one who's doing that for you. Jesus is your representative. Okay, but they say this is not a democracy. The third thing is the idea of freedom. Because in America, in your day-to-day -day lives, what does your freedom in this country mean for you? Let's, let's look at some specifics. Second Amendment freedoms. What, what does that mean for you? Yeah, 
Yeah, okay, but what does that mean for you? You have a right to protect yourself from the government. Sure, yeah, you have a right to protect yourself from the government. My short sort of tongue-in-cheek answer is, if you want to buy a gun, go buy a gun. If you want to go buy $10,000 worth of ammo and put it down range, go and do it. Which is about two boxes nowadays. <laughs> okay? But if you, if you want to do it, then do it. Uh, if you want to buy a suppressor, if you want to buy some cool little features and accessories, go and do it. You have the freedom to do it. Who is going to stop you? Nobody. You have the right. What about free speech? You have the freedom of speech, which means what for you? You can criticize your authorities. Yes, you can criticize your authorities. Um, think of that, think of the, the, the right to freedom of speech in a more broad scope. What does that mean that you get freedom to say? Well, okay, but what do you get to say? Anything you want. Anything you want. Although the courts have put some limits, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Well, you can, yeah, but you there can. are consequences for it. Right, you can say whatever you want, but there are consequences for some of them. Yes, but by and large, you are, you are able to say whatever you want to say. Which is why, by the way, anybody who refuses to use preferred pronouns cannot really face any um, recompense from the courts because preferred pronouns are what's referred to as mandatory speech. You cannot mandate to another person what they are and are not allowed to say. Which is why people like Jordan Peterson, if you, I don't know if you know anything about him, a Canadian intellectual, uh, he's actually, I think, sort of like the modern C.S. Lewis figure, extraordinarily intelligent clinical psychologist who only got famous because the Canadian government started passing laws mandating that you use preferred pronouns and he said he wouldn't do it. He said, I've never ran into that issue, but if, it, if I ever did, I, I wouldn't do it because you don't have the right to do that. And then he got famous for it and was an atheist, but an intellectual atheist, which are the best kind, honestly. A non-intellectual atheist you can't even have a discussion with. At least with an intellectual atheist, you can sit down and have a beer with each other and walk away and you can still be friends. Um, the other kind just yells at you and parrots things and you just, you can't have a conversation. But then he, um, faced so much political backlash, he ended up becoming addicted to uh, some kind of prescription medication and had to go into detox and went off the grid for a while and came back and said he had uh, some religious experiences and thought about things really deeply and for a long time and is now a Christian. So Jordan Peterson is, is a good example of, of this kind of thing. Um, mandated speech, you can't mandate speech. Well, what about the church though? What does freedom mean in the church? Can you come to the church and say anything you want? No. You can't. You don't have freedom of speech in the church. You say what the church tells you to say. Do you get to come and make up your own creed? No. Do I care about your opinions? No. Does Jesus care about your opinions? No. Does the church care about your opinions? No. We don't. <laughs> See, so freedom, and then in this, in this sense, does freedom mean that you have the ability or the the um, 
the permission, the right to do whatever you want to do. Now, in America, basically, as a secular country, that is kind of what it means. If you have freedom, if I want to go buy land, I can buy land. If I want to build a house on my land, I'm going to build a house on my land. If I want to farm my land, I'm going to farm my land. I mean, you have freedoms, and of course, there are regulations on those, and the arguments about whether regulations should be there or not, are, those arguments are for different days, and not in church. If you want to have a beer and argue about that stuff, hey, I'll come over. Because uh, mostly I think we're, we'll just be planning on how all of us together will collectively run the world better than whoever's running it now. Sort of like what happens at Paula's or McDonald's in the morning. Um, and, by the way, I will just say, if the collective Paula's group or the collective McDonald's group ran for the, a group presidential office, they'd have my vote. <laughs> I'm convinced they know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, but you don't have that in the church. Your will actually in the church is bound in a sense that is more strict than it was before when you, were, when you were a pagan and when you only knew sin. Now your will is bound because you know what is good, but the, fa but the fact that the matter is being bound in that sense actually gives you freedom. Freedom from the law, freedom from death, freedom to live your true self out to its full capacity. And that is what freedom means in the church. Not, excuse me, that you have the ability to do whatever you want or whatever you are able, like it means in the world. True freedom within the church means that you are bound to Christ, that you are not free to do whatever you want, but you are free to do anything that is good and free to live uh, live out your life to the fullest capacity of who you were really created to be. That is what it means. And that is what it means to be free from the law, too, because what does the law do? Yes, very good. That was a very good Lutheran answer. I should have anticipated that before I asked the question. <laughs> the law constricts. The law binds you. You cannot do this, you must do this. But being free from the law doesn't mean that you then look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments and say, well, I'm free from the law, so I don't have to love my neighbor anymore. What it means to be free from the law and to have a regenerate will is that you are not limited to love your neighbor only to the degree that the law says. You are not limited by the as little as. You're not limited by the minutia of what it means to follow the law. Here's a really good example, tithing. If you look at the Old Testament, what is the law about tithing? 10%. You give 10%. And uh, the law says 10, 10. 10, and what do you do? Okay, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Fine, I'll give my 10%. But what is that law doing? It's constricting you and restricting you. You can't live yourself, live to be the fullness of yourself underneath the yoke of that law because 10% is not that much. But now look at the New Testament church in the book of Acts and what they give. How much do they give? Well, yeah, between 10 and 100%. So no longer are they bound by the law that says 
Now they are, now they are bound to the gospel that is, ah, oh, yeah, 10% the Lord should have, but I can give even more than 10% now if I want. I have the freedom to be able to do that. And so all of these tiny little things that aren't, you know, they don't stop being required, like loving your neighbor, but now in the gospel, you being free and having a new regenerate will and being bound in freedom to Christ and not to sin now opens up new doors of possibilities for you to live in a better way and in a more fulfilling way according to the image and likeness of God that is in you. Does this make sense? The law closes doors and keeps you trapped in a room. The gospel doesn't delete that room. It keeps the room there, but then it opens all kinds of other doors so you can go explore more in the house and live better in the house. Do you understand? Is that okay? Bill. Going back to the comments you were making about what we think, does the church care what we think, or does God care, and so on. One of the things that should restrict our thought is that that uh, we voluntarily um, commit fidelity to the Lutheran confessions. Mm. So when we say, well, I think, before you say I think, you better look at the confessions that you've already agreed to before you come up with, well, I think everybody out t- outside ought to have communion. You look to see what you pronounced fidelity too. Yes, that's true, which is why I have sort of a very uncharitable joke about the ELCA. Evangelical, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and the joke is, well, they're not evangelical, they're not Lutheran, they're not a church anymore, but they are in America. See, because if you actually look at the definition of what it means to be evangelical, focused on the gospel, well, they're not anymore, because the gospel does have limitations. Um, they're not Lutheran, because they abandoned long ago any sense of subscription to the Lutheran confessions. And they aren't really a church, because they are not ordered by the norms of the historic Christian faith. They're kind of their own deal now, but they are in America. So one out of four ain't bad, is it? Lutheran Church or not, we've got a Baptist preacher. Yeah, that's not ELCA, though. That's um, NALC, North American Lutheran Church. And that's an offshoot of... This is... I know this is going out hot on the podcast, but I really have to say this. One of my critiques about the NALC Church is they... And this came from an NALC pastor. Well, the ELCA abandoned scripture. Okay, right, they're not evangelical anymore. They abandoned scripture, and that was where we drew the line. Because if you don't have scripture, you don't have anything. Hey, great, amen, I'm with you, brother. So we split off, and now we're our own church, and we maintain the fidelity to scripture. Okay, great, do you ordain women? Well, yes, we do. And it's like, guy, my man, do you understand what it means to uphold Scripture? Because if, if non-adherence to Scripture is what caused you to break off from the mother church body and create your own daughter church body, why in your daughter church body would you do the same thing? And not it's just one of those really sort of ironic statements. 
Yeah, yeah, we, we adhere to scripture now. Okay, but you ordain women, don't you? I mean, yeah, we do. Okay. I think the split. The split was over homosexuals. Yes. And so they really haven't changed their confessions about anything except... I know. Yeah, I, yeah I'm aware of that. But, you know, there was a... There was an ELCA church in Menominee Falls, which is sort of outside Milwaukee, and um, my church growing up, they saw a huge influx of members because that ELCA church refused to affirm the beliefs of the ELCA when the ELCA affirmed, you know, the trans stuff and the homosexual bishops and, and all of that. They refused to affirm that, and the ELCA owned the building and kicked them out of the building and then shut the congregation down because they were not in conformity with synod's stance. So all of these people left the ELCA and then joined the Missouri Synod Church that was, you know, 20 minutes away. And there was one pastor there named Wolf Knoppe who grew up in Germany and the story goes, as I have been told, he actually knew Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a little boy, and when Dietrich Bonhoeffer was on house arrest or something, he would sing hymns outside of Bonhoeffer's window. Then he came to America, and he told my pastor, I'm going to join your church because, doggone it, I've been a Lutheran my whole life, and I'm not going to die a heretic. So... Uh, yeah, I don't, know if, I don't know if he's still alive. He was old when he joined the church. But uh, anyway, let's talk. We, need, we sort of need to get back onto this whole um, <coughs> pornography thing because there's a, there's a lot of stuff that I have lined up. I, I want to talk about this more, though, in terms of um, the culture at the moment. Have you ever read Aldous Huxley, The uh, Brave New World? Oh my goodness, friends, you, you have to do it. You, ha you have to read that book. It was written in 1932, 33, something like that, 1930s. And it's sort of a dystopian novel set in the world 20, or the year 2546 or something like that. And um, if you ever hear me talking about Christianity without tears, oh, actually, it's in the sermon today. That's from Huxley. That's from Brave New World, because part of what the world tries to do is to take away all sadness. We're going to take away all pain and all sadness. So, you know, now you can, have a, a, you can have a church where there's no need to ever feel pain or sorrow or cry or anything like that ever again. And um, I want to talk about a few things here. So I have just, um, so th there's a drug called Soma that everybody is addicted to, and like everybody's just pill poppers. And soma is actually a Greek word that means body, which is really interesting. But so anytime somebody has any kind of sorrow or pain or anything, they just pop a soma tablet and then it's like taking uh, a drug so then they feel relaxed and they feel good. And who provides the soma? The state, because the state wants all of their people in an act of mercy to feel good. So the state will provide you with everything you need and the state will hook you on the state's dope so that you rely on the state to feel good. And everybody is okay with it because they feel so good. Oh, I don't ever have to cry anymore. Thank you, state. 
Um, so here's a description of soma. If ever by some unlikely chance anything unpleasant should somehow happen, why, there's always soma to give you a holiday from the facts. And there's always soma to calm your anger, to reconcile you to your enemies, to make you patient and long-suffering. In the past, you could only accomplish these things by making a great effort and after years of hard moral training. Now you swallow two or three half-gram tablets, and there you are. Anybody can be virtuous now. You can carry at least half your morality about in a bottle. Christianity without tears. That's what Soma is. Anybody can be virtuous now. Where once you had to work and strive to be a good Christian, now we've got Christianity in a bottle for you. Pop a couple pills and you're a good Christian. It'd be funny if it weren't so true. Look around at the world right now. But here's the thing I really want to get to. Huxley wrote a foreword to the 1946 version of this book. And the foreword is worth reading all by itself. And that, that's on the list for the library downstairs, but we're going to get the 1946 version just so that you can read his foreword to the book as well. Also keep in mind that this is written during the time of the atomic bomb. So C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about the atomic bomb, which I stole in talking about COVID, because he basically said, yeah, everybody's afraid now because we because the atomic bomb has been invented. And, uh, well, how are we going to live our lives after the atomic bomb? And he said, the same way you lived before it. What, is this the only time man ever figured out a way to kill another man? Come on, grow up. Either the bomb's going to get you or something else is going to get you. You keep living your life the way you did, which is as a faithful Christian. Grow up. So Lewis was addressing that too. Chesterton talks about you know, the future a little bit. But um, Huxley addresses it here. You'll hear it. So this is what he writes. As political and economic freedom diminishes, sexual freedom tends compensatingly to increase. Oh, so you mean the sexual revolution isn't only just about letting people do whatever they want with their bodies? You mean that there's something else going on with the sexual revolution, like giving you all the sex you want so that you are willing to give up anything else but your sex? Whoa, no way, Huxley. 1946 is here, knocking on the door of the 21st century. Uh, and the dictator will do well to encourage that freedom. In conjunction with the freedom to daydream under the influence of dope and movies and radio, it will help to reconcile his subjects, that is sex, Promiscuity will help to reconcile his subjects to the servitude which is their fate. All things considered, it looks as though utopia were far closer to us than anyone could have imagined. Today, it seems quite possible that the horror may be upon us within a single century. <gasps> within a single century. century. What's the year now? Hmm, 2021. Well, we've still got 25 years and we were within the century. <laughs> And folks, not to be doom and gloom, but the way things are going right now, we might just make it within the century. Today, blah, blah, blah. This, that is, if we refrain from blowing ourselves to smithereens in the interval. Yeah, there's that. So anyway, listen to this. Um, utopia. The world wants utopia. Why does everybody want communism? Because communism is a utopia. Why does everyone want equity? 
because equity is utopia. I was in an argument about communism with a fella when I was in college, and this is what he said, which I thought was one of the most terrible arguments you could ever make for communism, and that was, quote, yeah, but in a perfect world, communism would work. You laugh, which means you're starting to see why that's a terrible argument. Tell me, there's two things. Why is that a terrible argument? Right, okay, it's not a perfect world. So if you have to defend something by saying, well, in a perfect world it would work, then it's probably not worth defending, okay? The second thing is, okay, sure, in a perfect world it would work. But guess what? In a perfect world, any form of government would work. But even beyond that, in a perfect world, there would, no, there would be no need to be governed. Come on! It's like, idiots. Pardon me? Right. The perfect world. So utopia now becomes the goal that everybody wants. I want to create a utopia. We're going to do, like politically, sorry, politically we're going to do the great economic reset and nobody's going to own anything and you're going to be happy that you don't own anything because we're going to own everything and we're going to make sure that everybody then shares everything that we own. Communism is utopia. No more inequalities, no more rich and poor, only the same. And that's what we want. Everybody the same. It's, it's, it's utopia. No more sadness, no more anger, no more sorrow. Take some Soma tablets and everything is now dandy. We are going to create perfection. And what's the pinnacle on top of perfection? Whatever you want to do sexually, the world is your oyster. As long as you are happy, utopia is defined by that. Anything you want. Larry. You just define three days of Woodstock. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get any more utopia than that. A little drugs, a little free, and you're Although you have to kind of yeah, 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 you would. A little, uh, little more bells and whistles. Some snazzy hair, too. Uh, yeah, that's sort of what it is. Now, here's why I bring Huxley up. Because where we left off is talking about pornography. And, and honestly, it's not just pornography, but, but sexual, pro pro sexual proclivities and promiscuity, which is so rampant, um, and uh, we're talking about this libido dominandi, libido dom the dominating lust. And remember that there's two definitions of that. One is that you're, you have a lust to dominate another person. So you don't have, you don't have in the hierarchy of creation, you have no right to govern another human being. So the examples are euthanasia. Isn't it more convenient for grandma if we just put her down like the dog? Isn't it? Then she's not suffering anymore. Sound familiar? We'll take away all your suffering. But at what cost do you take away suffering? Because if the cost of this utopia is human rights, 
and the denial of the personhood of humanity, then I'm not willing to pay it. But you, that you want to assert yourself over another. In fact, in the Netherlands, they will euthanize somebody if the family, in a majority opinion, decides to do it. They will strap somebody down who is fighting and saying, please don't kill me, and they will execute that person because the family wanted it. That's true. Grandma's tied up on the bed, and we think it's going to be better for her just to be put down. But she doesn't want to be put down. She wants to still live through it. But we've decided for her that this is going to be better for her. What is that? That is a lust to dominate. Because who are you thinking of? You're not, you, you say that you're thinking of grandma. I'm going to put grandma down because it's better for her. But what are you really thinking? I'm tired of you, Grandma. I'm tired of taking you to the doctor. I'm tired of having to come to your house when you fall. I'm tired of being at your beck and call. You are an inconvenience to me, and it's going to be better for you, for me, if you just die. Your lust to dominate. Abortion is another one. The child in my womb is an inconvenience to me. You know what I find so disturbing about this, this week after that Supreme Court leak? The thing that I find the most disturbing is that there are all these headlines and all these people pro protesting, and what are they saying? You are going to force me to be pregnant. I, I'm sorry, what? I'm forcing you to be pregnant? Do you not understand? I mean, I know we're in the age now where you have to be a biologist to understand basic biological functions, but does it really take a biologist to know that one part goes there and another part goes there and then, you know, you get a baby? Does it t do, you not, do you need to be a biologist to know that? Are, am, are, am I forcing you to go out and sleep with anything that breathes and moves? Or am I saying that if you choose to do the only biological act that is designed specifically to give you a child, and you want to do that, that then you own up to the fact that you did it and you accept the consequences of that biological act. Again, the only biological act in all of creation that has one predictable and determined outcome. That's, the, that's another of this, lust to dominate. Because it isn't about the child, it's about me. I saw another really disturbing headline. In fact, I took a screenshot of it. I was so upset by it. Five women speak on how they got abortions and aren't sorry about them because they are way better off financially after having the abortion. I mean, do you know how disturbing that is? That the whole argument is, I'm better off financially. That's a lust to dominate. I'm going to be the one in charge. I'm gonna. But here's the flip side of this libido dominandi. Not only is it the lust to dominate, to assert myself over another, it is the lust that dominates me from within. So if I want to go and have my way with every woman that I see, and I want to dominate them in that sense, turn them into objects for my use, then the fact that I desire that is actually feeding something deeper and more dangerous in me that is eating me.
You are being dominated by Allah. You are being taken over and devoured by something much more dangerous. You are, you are being corrupted. Um, pornography will, by virtue of this libido dominandi, it will dominate the body, it will dominate the mind, and it will dominate the soul. It is like a cancer. Now, I know I use cancer as an example of sin, but in this sense, it really is, this is actually closer to cancer, that, that this kind of thing, it starts in one place, and then if left untreated, it continues to grow until finally you go to the doctor and it's in stage four and you've got a week to live. That's, that's what this does. Now, this idea of, we'll give you the dope of Christianity. Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who you may or may not have heard of, he was a Roman Catholic, I mean, obviously Roman Catholic. I actually like his stuff. He used to have a TV show and a radio program. In the 1950s. Yeah, back in the 50s. Um, I, I have a book of his that I'm really excited to read and I haven't read yet. I think it's called Old Errors, New Labels, uh, which is, a, I'm, a, I'm attracted to the title. But anyway, he, he has a whole talk about the problems with um, sexual promiscuity that he was giving in the 1950s and the work of the devil and that one of the things that the devil really likes is nudity. And then you think, but doesn't God like nudity too? So what's the difference between the way that the devil likes nudity and promotes it and the way God likes nudity and promotes it? God promotes a, a nudity that is a complete relinquishing of the self. That's why when we talk about knowing in the biblical sense, it means more than just sex. It means that nothing is hidden from the, you're not covering anything up. You are who you are, inside and out, and you're giving yourself wholly to another person who is receiving it, and likewise giving themselves. That's what it means to know. And you can't know if you're contracepting your love, in the sense, withholding parts of yourself. Um, and so, the nudity that the devil promotes is a, a, a nudity of lust, a, a nudity of use, where I don't actually care about the person, I, I only care about what they look like and what they are going to do to and for me, which is why, again, um, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much, which is often, I think that's, uh, yes, it shows a lot, but from a theological sense, that's kind of a prudish argument. Because the problem isn't that it shows too much. The problem isn't that there's two people bare on screen. The problem is that it shows too little. Because the only thing that it's showing is the body. The only thing that it's showing is the flesh. And the only thing that it's feeding is a fleshly lust. That's too little. Because you are more than what you are, or look like and what, what your body is. So you're reducing humanity, only the personhood that you deny, reducing it all down to just this one thing, physical attraction, and what can I get out of the person? So um, this is what Archbishop Fulton Sheen says. He says, the devil says, you've had your dope, and now you're hooked. So this whole idea of state-provided soma and sexuality becoming the thing that makes docile slaves. And I'll tell you one story quick. This is historic, too and then we'll be done, and I'll let you sort of ruminate on this until next week. I think it was in 2006, 
The, years, I, the year is maybe wrong, but if you Googled it, you can find it. Israel invaded the West Bank, Palestine, and took over the capital city of Ramallah. And in order to quell the insurrection of the Palestinian people there, the Israeli forces took over every single one of the broadcasting stations and played nothing on TV but hardcore pornography. And that was used as a psychological weapon because guess how many of the young men started fighting the Israelis while there was hardcore pornography on every single television station? Not many. None of them. This is a perfect example about how, how this is actually a weapon. The Israeli army weaponized pornography. All they did was put it on the TV and all of a sudden people stopped fighting them. Do you see that? It's dope. It's a drug. It's a disease. It's a cancer. It works itself into you. And again, it's not just pornography in general. It's basically the whole ethos of our current age. This ethos of sexual revolution, that I'm going to be free by doing whatever I want with my body, which gets us back to what true freedom is. You're not actually free if you're letting anybody do whatever they want with your body. And you say, well, it's okay because I'm, I'm having fun too. Well, that's not freedom though. Now you're being devoured by an inner lust. But, but all of this stuff is so bad, it can't be anything but demonic because it seeks to devour you. Yeah, and this, uh, this Israel thing is a true story. In fact, there is a whole book called Libido Dominandi, <clears throat> and it talks about the idea of sexual liberation as a political tool used throughout history to quell uprisings and reduce the people into just that, docile slaves. And they have this, this guy goes through and he has all these examples of different times when militaries would take in and then offer uh, things like, here, we brought a bunch of women. Now, now we're, this is our appeasement. We invaded you, but here are a bunch of women. Now come. And all of a sudden, everybody's now their friend. Why? Because they're kept at bay because anything that they want sexually will just provide them that. And it's a small price to pay to supply you with whatever you want sexually uh, if it means that we're going to be able to get you to do what we want. Think twice about what is on TV, what kind of movies, what kind of messages your kids are getting, where your kids are going to school. Think very carefully about all of these things because little tiny things you might look at and say, well, that's relatively innocuous. I can overlook that. You can't. One little bit of dope is all it takes to make an addict. The devil says you've had your dope, now you're hooked. All right, read Huxley. It's, it's, it's not a joyous book, but it is a good book, and um, very well written. I read it in high school for the first time, and I remember thinking, boy, this is kind of scary because it's even worse. You know, you read 1984, George Orwell, and you think, boy, this is pretty bad. You ain't seen nothing. Read Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Makes 1984 look like dog spit. Okay. <laughs> we'll see you at the altar. Okay.
Dr. Chris, they call him.